1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Awesome. Would you guys pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you so much uh, for this time. Uh, opportunity to gather together as a church family. And I pray that uh, as we work our way through these next few verses in our First Timothy series, um, that you would just uh, help just increase our desire uh, to have a positive influence in the lives of those around us, uh, and that you would also, God, um, just help us see that, that it's actually your power at work in us uh, to help us do that. And so, Lord, we just humbly come before your word um, to learn uh, alongside each other and ask, Lord, that you just be glorified in our time this afternoon. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, um, you, guys, you guys might know this, uh, but it's, uh, it's snowboarding season. Uh, right now, uh, I, I, I've seen like a lot of pictures, a lot of a lot of notices about this on social media. People hitting the slopes. Uh, right now, Danny Lee and his family are spending the weekend up in in Mammoth, uh, hitting the slopes, as they say, with the kids. Um, uh, you know, I'm not into snowboarding. <laughs> That's not my thing. Uh, all this talk about snowboarding talk has made me think about one of the first times though that I ever went snowboarding. Um, I was in college. I was a brand new Christian, um, and I'm I'm still sort of making new friends, new Christian friends, and so I'm like excited to go on this winter retreat with uh, with our college group. Uh, so I sign up for it, and we go on this eight hour drive to uh, this area of Utah that's known for its slow snow from, from slow its snow and its slopes, um, and and uh, you know when you're new to snowboarding. It can be kind of intimidating because you got to get like, you can't just decide to go and then go tomorrow. You got to get like a whole new wardrobe, right? You have to learn how to like walk with one foot in and one foot out, like as you're, as you're getting on. And, and when everyone piles up to the line on the lift, like you, they've got like one guy whose sole job is to make sure that everyone takes their turn. That's how intense it can get. And the thing about, about the ski slopes and, 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 and the snow slopes is that uh, they make beginner runs um, sound uh, kind of insulting, right? Like uh, Teddy Bear Valley. Right? Uh, and the other slopes where the general pop- population gets, gets to, to run on, uh, they have terrifying names like, like Goliath's Revenge, right? It couldn't just be like Mediocre Mountain. You're just like really, really cutesy name or something really intimidating. And, and I didn't want to be like one of the only dudes on this trip to go on Bunny Hill, right? And Brian Head 
uh, Utah. And so I signed up to go where everyone else was going. Uh, this is a set of mountains called Giant Steps. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever been there. Uh, giant Steps uh, Mountain. It, it, they call it that because it, it's like these giant steps. Like you go up the mountain and it's like one mountain on top of another on top of uh, another. And so I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I could probably do this. I'll just copy my friends what they do. And so like we, I, I, I make my way onto the lift and we, we go up and I'm like, oh, wow, this is like, this is a really high mountain. Uh, and we get over the top and I'm like, dude, there's a whole other mountain uh, on the back of this mountain. And then we go up that one. And this, this process like continues and I'm like sweating, right? And everyone jumps off at the top and my friends start like shredding down the hill and I'm, I'm following them. And, and like a lot of beginners, I can turn left just fine. But then like any other direction I go, I start like tumbling all over the place. Uh, and, and I find myself where I just go, like, I go left, I try to go right, and like I tumble, and I go left, and then try to go right, and like I tumble. Uh, and it repeats again and again. This happens like 30 times, and I haven't even gotten down like the first giant step. After one of this really bad falls, I'm just like out of breath. I'm just sitting there looking at like all the other big giant steps I have to go down. Uh, and this like 10-year-old girl comes up behind me like, She's like, are you okay, mister? I'm like, yeah, I'm just, uh, just taking in the view, you know? It's humiliating. The reason I did so badly uh, is because, like, I skipped a bunch of steps, right? I didn't start in the beginner slopes like I should have. I just kind of went for it. And if you want to know how to snowboard properly, you can't, you can't skip those baby steps, you can't skip those basic steps. And in order to be an effective influencer of people in the Christian life, you also can't skip those baby steps. You can't skip the basic steps. And as we've mentioned before, uh, this letter that we're going through, 1 Timothy, uh, was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Uh, he's a young pastor who was left at the church in Ephesus, and he was given a job, a task, to address all of these issue, different issues in the church so he could build a healthy gospel church. And so he, he writes this letter, Paul writes this letter to Timothy, but he says that he writes it so that the whole church can know how they should act, how they should behave. And so the book's not just for pastors and leaders, it's for all of us. And in our text today, Paul's addressing Timothy on how to be an effective minister of the gospel. And if he wants to have an effective ministry, there are some steps that should not be skipped. And look, while you might not ever be called to vocational ministry, to be a minister of the gospel uh, by vocation, or to be a pastor, uh, because the gospel has called you out of your former way of living and into a new life, you are still called to have what we might call gospel-shaped influence in the lives of the people around you. But to be effective in that, there are some steps that cannot be skipped, some characteristics of the gospel that cannot be missing. And so here's our big idea for this passage. It's that we are called by the gospel to be effective ministers to those around us, and that this type of influence can only come from the power of the gospel at work in us. Let's begin by looking at verse 11. Verse 11 is really short. Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Now, when he says command and teach these things, he's talking about everything that he already mentioned in chapter four so far. 
which included in the beginning confronting false teachers who were adding things to the gospel. Uh, and then last week we talked about, and it also included just calling people to be trained in godliness as good servants of Jesus. Look, the problem is, is that Timothy was not always well-received when he confronted the false teachers and when he called people to train in godliness because he was a relatively young guy. Um, scholars say that he was probably in his 20s and 30s. Now, I know that that's a lot of us in this room, but back then, people were highly, highly critical of anybody of that age in any type of leadership position. They were highly critical of Timothy because of his age. And so when he shows up to confront the false teachers and to call people to godliness, he suddenly became unpopular. He wasn't old enough in their eyes to be given respect. He was pastoring a big church in a town called Ephesus, was a very influential city. And so there's a lot of great opportunity for him as a leader. Uh, but we also know from 2 Timothy that he had sort of a shy and timid personality. And so the odds were kind of stacked against them. People didn't respect him because of his age. He kind of had a, a more reserved personality. And so how is it that he would gain a hearing with the people that he's called to be leading in ministry, with the people that he's called to be influencing in the gospel? And that's where we get our points uh, for our sermon today. And the point number one is that he must demonstrate godliness personally. Number one, demonstrate godliness personally. Where do we see this? This is, happens in verse 12 when Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. So Paul says to him, he says, hey, don't let anybody despise you because of how young you are, because of your age. And that word despise might sound like a really strong word to like our, our modern ears, but the Greek word for despise, uh, kataproneo, means to look, to look down upon. It's almost like look down your nose at someone as, as though you think you're better than this other person. Paul's saying, hey, look, some people are going to look down on you because of your age, and don't let them. What he says is don't let them do that, but rather set an example to them. You see, this is a good encouragement to us. Because we know from 2 Timothy that, that Timothy had this tendency to be more timid and reserved, as we've said, in his personality. And so he might even appear to some people uh, as, as somebody who's kind of weak to be a leader. But Paul says, hey, look, when you're facing opposition from others, when you're facing criticism from them, you, you might feel uh, uh, defensive you might feel like, like you want to argue with them. You might want to run your mouth and prove them wrong. But you need to be a different kind of person. You need to set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, faith, and purity. You see, Timothy faced what I think a lot of young pastors face, feeling as if people are questioning you because of your, your youthfulness um, or because of your, your faith. Like they want to challenge you, think, saying that, thinking that because of their age, they know more than you might. And he faced what I think just a lot of young Christians in general face. Like maybe you have people around you in your family or at work who, who you feel like look, look down on you because of your faith who you feel think that they're better than you because they think your faith is foolish. 
Look, I hope you can find encouragement from all the saints that have gone before us. You got guys like Charles Spurgeon, uh, the guy who, you know, we had a, our cigar night the other night in, in memory of him, Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor at 20 years old. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he became a monk trained for ministry at 22. John Calvin enrolled at a theology school in Paris at age 14. Jonathan Edwards went to Yale at 13 and became the most influential American theologian to this date. You look at guys like Daniel in the scriptures, uh, or David, who slayed Goliath as a kid. Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, was a teenager when he started his ministry. Esther was a teenager. Uh, Mary was young. Tons of young people all throughout the scriptures who, by the grace of God, made a difference. Today, over half of the world population is under the age of 30. And we need strong healthy leaders. This next generation needs strong leaders. More than any other time in the last century, the church needs healthy, gospel-shaped leaders. So my question for you is, hey, maybe will you be one of them? Will you be one of them? What does Paul say for those who would seek to influence those around us in in light of the gospel? He says, they must set an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Let's look at each of those. He says, set an example in your speech. In other words, the question to ask is, how is it that you talk to others? How is it that you talk about others? Don't be aggressive. Don't be boastful. Don't be a gossip. As a leader, you're going to know things that most other people don't know. People will criticize your leadership. They'll they'll criticize your decisions. They might feel offended or slighted by you, but they're operating out of like a a, a narrow uh, view perspective. And you'll have, because you're involved in so many different things, you'll have this this just broader, truer view or perspective, but it might not always be appropriate uh, to share everything um, uh, that's going on uh, because you might be sharing like what's what's really none of that person's business, Uh, like what's going on in the lives of other people and some of the other struggles going on. You need to be guarded in your speech now. You can't be a gossip. He says you also got to set an example in your, the second word is conduct. In conduct, in other words, set an example with just the way that you live your life. Young people get this idea in their head where they say, hey, look, I think one day, one day I'll be a godly person. One day I'll be a kind person. One day I'll be generous with my giving. One day I'll take the Bible seriously. One day I'll be old enough to do all of these things that we've been been talking about. But look, man, I know a lot of older guys who are not godly or kind or generous or readers of their Bibles. Like if you're a young person, I think most of us are, now is the time to get serious about how you're living your life for Christ. You think you just like wake up one day, like you just turn 35, you wake up one day and it's like, I'm all grown up now, right? I'm spiritually mature now. No, spiritual maturity is about so much more than just knowing facts. It's more about the, than doing the right activities. It's not about having more money or more power. It's about the conduct of your life. It's about how your character fleshes out and how you live. 
The question to ask is, can people model you? Can other Christians model you? Can, can they be drawn closer to God if they were to model you? Are you wholehearted in your living for Christ? He says we also got to set an example in our love. You see, leading and shepherding people is about loving them. Influencing people, understood rightly, is about loving them. You see, this especially applies to people who, who serve in positions of leadership. First Peter says that leadership is not lordship. You don't lord your power over people. You don't, you don't, you don't force them to obey you. Jesus says that's what the Gentiles do. No, it's rather, rather setting an example. Having people follow you while you love them and love Jesus well. Setting an example in love means you also love your neighbor as yourself. Are you known as a hospitable person? Do you model love the way that Jesus does? Do you surround yourself with, with people and only look to hang with people who are easy for you to hang out with? Or, or are you just asking, like, who around me am I called to love, even if it might be a little hard to? You see, one of the reasons that we planted a church in this area is because um, they're close to like half a million people in the cities that we all live in, uh, that were uh, all the different cities that uh, uh, like around this area uh, that our church tends to draw people from. Half a million people. That's, that's half a million people who bear the image of God. And demographic studies tell us that more and more, at an exponential rate, more and more people are starting to identify as no faith at all. Look, if you don't love those people, those people around you, if you don't desire them to know the love of God towards sinners, then you can't be a leader in any meaningful sense of that word. He says you also got to be an example in faith. In other words... Do hard things shatter your faith in God? Are you so consumed with anxiety in the presence, or do you have this eternal, long perspective of what God might be doing? The Bible tells us that suffering and trials become a gift to the Christian because instead of tearing us down, they have the power to build us up in godliness and character. Do you show your trust in God also with how you rest from your work. There's a biblical precedence for that too, that when we trust God and really have faith in him, uh, that we, we won't overwork ourselves. And last, we must set an example in purity, and specifically the word there refers to sexual purity. Can someone look to your example with how you relate to, to people of the opposite sex? Do you treat men if you're a woman or women if you're a man? Do you treat men or women as, as objects for your, um, for your gratification? Or do you love them purely as brothers and sisters in Christ? That's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set for believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and impurity. In other words, set an example in every area of your life. He says, people will not despise your youth if they admire your example. Effective gospel influence can take place when, when, when what it is that you say about God starts to match the way that you live for him. 
That's how you gain credibility, Paul says. Secondly, you must devote yourself to the scriptures publicly. Point number two, devote yourself to the scriptures publicly. We see this right there in verse 13 when Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Paul's saying like, hey, look, I'm on my way to come to you, to preach to you guys and to build you up in the faith. But hey, until I do that, Timothy, I want you to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture and exhortation and teaching. This is where we get the origin of the Christian sermon. It's a big part of what we do here uh, during worship on Sundays, and, and it's important. You see, it's the common practice that we see all throughout the scriptures. Like in the Old Testament, if you're going through our Bible reading plan, you're going to start to, or sorry, our, if you're studying this in our home groups, uh, you'll start to see this. Uh, and, and when we're going through the book of Ezra, uh, and when you read the other prophets, that, that it was a common practice for people to gather uh, for sermons. This is a practice that was carried on in the New Testament. We see it all throughout the book of Acts and in the early church on until today. And it's the same pattern that has begun on and on throughout generations and centuries. Someone comes up with a Bible, that Bible is read publicly, and then someone teaches and explains what it was that was just read. All throughout history, this is what Christians have done on the Lord's Day. This is what we call expository preaching. And it's our primary mode of preaching here at King's Cross because it ensures that our teaching is rooted in the scriptures themselves. Not in some anecdote that I came up with, not with some story that I hope to inspire you with, but in the eternal word of God. And look, we, you need to know that this is why we do what we do in the way that we do it. We don't gather around a personality or around a brand. We don't primarily gather around this, this movement. No, we gather around the word of God. It's what God's people have done for generations and centuries. The word is read publicly, someone explains it, and then applies it to our Christian lives. Paul says, Timothy, this is what you need to be doing. Why is it that others should listen to you? Why is it that you should gain credibility with others? It's not because of your age. It's not because of your skill. But it's because, Paul says, because you have the Bible. That's why people should listen to you. That's where your authority comes from. Tony Morita, uh, he's a pastor on the East Coast. He's a dean at Grant Grimke Seminary and uh, uh, the director of theological development for our church planning network that we belong to. Um, this guy's a beast when it comes to preaching and teaching others how to be preachers. Uh, but Tony Morita, he talks, he talks about this. Um, uh, you know, he's got this, this painting uh, by, uh, uh, by this guy named uh, Lucas Cronash. I have no idea if that's how you say it, but then Lucas Cronash. I'm going to guess that's how it is. Uh, uh, but he's got this painting by Lucas Cronash of Martin Luther uh, up in his office, Tony Morita. Um, and in this painting, um, if you see in the painting, Luther has one finger on the text of his Bible uh, and the other one pointing to Christ. And the whole audience... The whole congregation before him in this painting is focusing their attention on Jesus rather than the great German reformer, Martin Luther himself. Look, I think that's a great picture, an accurate picture of what should happen when we assemble for worship and hear gospel preaching. 
The goal of the preacher is not to give his opinions and his ideas, but to carefully and intently explain the meaning of the Bible text and to lift up Jesus in the process, in his message. So this is a lot of instruction for what Paul has to say to Timothy as a minister and preacher, but what does this mean for the rest of us? I think for a Christian to have gospel-shaped influence, the question to ask is, where is it that your authority comes from? Are you shaped by the word of the gospel? Or are you shaped by the world? Are you devoted to the public reading of scripture? In other words, are you devoted to assembling with other Christians on the Lord's Day to, to listen and to learn with humility uh, alongside other believers as a family under the word of God? When you come to the service, like, or when you open your Bible uh, to read uh, throughout the week, are you listening intently? Are you fighting to stay focused, removing other distractions from you? Are you resolved to, when you hear the word, are you resolved to respond to the word with the way that you live? James warns us not to be mere receivers of the word, but to be doers of the word as well. You see, when we yield our heart, soul, mind, and strength to God, we become shaped by the word to then be ambassadors of the word. And so Paul says, devote yourself to the scriptures publicly. Point number three is this, don't deny your gifts. Don't deny your gifts, don't deny your calling. He says this in verse 14. He says, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Do not neglect the gift that you have. With other scriptures involved in there, there's a sense that like if you don't lose it, you might lose it. If you don't use it, you might lose it. Effective ministry requires the exercise of your spiritual gifts and your calling. And so don't, don't deny them. Um, God had gifted Timothy in a certain way to lead the church in Ephesus. And so for Timothy to be used by God in the way that God intended, he had to walk in the gifts that God gave him. It says that this gift was given by prophecy and by the laying on of hands from the council of elders, which is a weird phrase that probably refers to his ordination service when he was installed uh, as a pastor at this church in Ephesus. And so he's telling Timothy, hey, look, like, don't remember what went into that. Don't remember your, your, the gifts that God has given you and how these elders, these other pastors came alongside you. They put their hands on you. They prayed over you. They installed you as a pastor as a way of saying, hey, we believe in this man. We believe and entrust this church to him. He's saying, look, don't be, don't be timid. Don't be too shy. Paul's saying to Timothy, like, remember that. Remember your great calling. And he says, don't deny that gift. Why would anybody deny a gift from God? I think there's lots of reasons that we could deny a gift from God. It could be apathy, laziness, just the consumer mentality that we have here in the Western church. Hey, I'm going to do church to get something out of it. Well, I'm not going to put anything back into it. The church is here for me. I'm not here for the church. Or look at what Paul says in Romans 12 regarding this. He says, in Romans 12, for it is in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. In other words, he says, God has given every Christian gifts to be used in the church for the common good. 
every single one of us. So whatever it is that your gift might be, the Bible is clear that we've all been given them. We've all been given spiritual gifts for the good of the body. Just like a body is made up of different members that each play their part and role, in order for effective ministry to happen, you need the whole body of Christ to participate. Man, this is the heart of our membership process uh, that we're going to go through in our Membership Matters class next week. We want to help every single person that calls King's Cross their home, help them find a place to make sure that we're a place to serve and to, to make sure that we're holding each other together as the body of Christ. I think there's another reason that we might neglect the gifts that God has given us. Um, and that's, that's we, we might think that we don't have any. Some of you might be thinking like, hey, this, this kind of, Encouragement makes sense for Timothy, but man, who am I? Like, I can't preach. I'm not a leader. Here's what the Bible would say to you in 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each, in other words, to every single one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common but good. You see, every single one of us has spiritual gifts to build up Christians in the church and to advance the gospel in the world. These gifts are visible outworkings of God's power on display through human service. Look, you're, you might know what your gift, not know what your, you might not know what your gifts are. Let's talk about that. Let's help you figure it out. You might have an upfront gift uh, where you serve from, from the stage, uh, or it might be behind the scenes, like a lot of our other service roles. It can be a public gift that others get to observe, or it can be private, like praying preparing communion, preparing crafts for events. That's the gift of hospitality. Look, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible is clear that you do have gifts. You don't get to say that you don't. So the question is, will you figure out what they are and will you use them to build up the church? A person of influence is someone who doesn't sit on their gifts or their calling but happily uses them for the glory of God and the good of others. Point number four, you must display your progress in the faith. Paul says, look, if you want to gain credibility with others, display your progress in the faith. You see this in verse 15 when he says, practice these things. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. He says, practice these things. That's a way of saying, hey, be diligent. Keep it going. Effective ministry requires diligence and growth. It requires immersing yourself in the same gospel that you've been preaching and believing. That means people can start to visibly see the effects of the gospel in your life. It means you're excited about it. You're growing in it. They start to see that the gospel that you drink from is this fountain of living water, not a stagnant puddle. 
And this isn't just mere progress uh, in like having vain emotions of faith. It's seeking to be actually faithful with how you live your life. Some of us, because of this culture that we grew up in, this Western culture, like, like we've, been, we've been taught uh, by modern culture and by uh, romanticism. Uh, we've, been, we've been taught that uh, if something is real, it's got to move you. It's got to stir you up. And look, there's a sense into which that's true. What is real does stir us and does move us. But I think the problem is that we, we constantly chase the emotion and the passion and the spiritual high rather than actual spiritual substance rooted in the word of God. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He gives this warning. He says, there's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. You see, when you practice something again and again and again and again and again, it starts to become a habit. And then that habit becomes a part of who you are. In 1976, at the age of 14, um, Nadia Comaneci was the first gymnast to be awarded a perfect score of 10 out of 10 at the Olympics. Um, and uh, at 14, she, she won 10 out of 10, uh, scored 10 out of 10, and she was interviewed afterwards about her great achievement. Everyone's like freaking out. Our journalists are shoving microphones in her face, and this one interviewer was just so shocked. He's like, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, and he was just shocked by how unfazed she was by the whole thing. And he's like, how are you not like like celebrating right now, how like you you did it, you know you did it. you got ten out of ten, and and her like just humble childish response was was yeah yeah like don't get me wrong like I'm excited, but it's just that I've done that same thing like so many times again and again and again during training. See the practice the faith and immerse yourself in these things means godliness it becomes just a part of who you are. It just becomes what you are. It means that there's growing and maturing, a progress that's visible. Paul's saying to Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, people should be able to see that because you've been in the word yourself and have sat under the word publicly. They should be able to see that you're growing in the faith. And so display your progress in the faith. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that others can see your progress. And lastly, he says, number five, determine the state of your spiritual health persistently. Determine the state of your spiritual health persistently. We see this in our last verse, verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. A language here is fascinating. He says, if you do this, if you keep on keeping on, you're going to save yourself and your hearers. Now, is Paul telling Timothy that he can save himself by his preaching? The answer is no. Is he saying that he can save others by his 
preaching. Like if he just preaches rightly like that, he will automatically save others. The answer is no. And the reason that we know that is because in so many of his other writings, Paul makes it clear that the ground of our salvation is not anything that we do, not anything that any other person has done other than Christ Jesus, what he has done. All right? So then what is he saying? When we look at the context, literally what he's saying here is that it's not that Timothy can't save anyone. The point of this text is to say, look, if you pay close attention to your life, and if you pay close attention to your teaching, as opposed to the spiritual opponents from earlier in chapter 4 who did not pay attention to their life and teaching, if you do that, then you will preserve the saving faith that you and your hearers have. And so he says, watch your life and your doctrine. You see, it's important for leaders and ministers to continue to study the Bible and study theology and doctrine to pursue depth in the things of God. If you neglect these things, then you won't be able to offer any good alternative to the lies of our generation. But on the other hand, some guys think that all they need is to have the right answers. And if they have the right answers, they're good. They can live however the heck they want in secret. And Paul says, no, it's not like that. You can't divorce the one from the other. You can't separate them. You need both. Watch your life and your teaching. And when he tells Timothy to persist in this, in other words, to keep on keeping on, he says, if you continue in these things and grow in godly character, then you will be so strengthened in the faith that you will never fall away. Paul is simply echoing the words of Jesus in John 8, when Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When Jesus says, abide in my word, that's his way of saying, if you continue on in my word, if you keep on in my word, when he says that, He's not saying, if you do your daily Bible reading plan, no, it's so much deeper than that. He's saying, look, you have to settle yourself down into my word and stay there. Make your home there. Jesus was the one person of supreme gospel influence. He's the king of kings the Lord of lords, the eternally begotten Son of God. He's the creator of the cosmos, the one who commands all the stars with the sheer volition of his will. He's the one who calms storms by the sound of his voice, the one who gathered crowds and astonished them with his miracles and his teaching, the one who makes demons tremble, the one who made angels sing songs. He laid down all that influence for a moment in time, having lived in our place to die on the cross in our place and for our sins. But he rose from the grave in triumphant victory so that now through faith in him, 
And in this risen king, we can now be empowered to live as he did for the glory of God and for the good of others. Will you answer the call to be an effective minister to those around you? The power to do so can only come from the power of the gospel at work in us. And so let's live as new creations. Let's feed and be nourished by the word of Christ. Let's lean into the gifts that God has sovereignly given to us, his people. And let's practice godliness and faithfulness. When we do these things and continue in these things, we will be a new generation of men and women shaped by the gospel to live for the glory of God and the good of others. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.